0: I'm Elia Einhorn, podcast producer at The Talk House. Today, we have a couple of very special guests, starting with Alan Palomo, is Neon Indian, and Neon Indian is a modern master of retro synthesizers. Last year's hugely popular record, Vega International Night School, brought Palomo's gorgeous falsetto, gurgling synths and breezy dance floor rhythms, as well as trippy visuals to accompany each song, and an amazing music video slash short film called Slumlord Rising. Alan, are you blushing yet?
1: Uh, My ears are burning, that's (laughs) for sure.
0: (laughs) It also brought Alan together with synth punk pioneer Martin Reb of Suicide, who remixed the song Annie, and the two recorded a fantastic TalkHouse music podcast that you can check out on our website. Alan, welcome to the TalkHouse, man.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for being here. Carolyn Polichek fronts the wonderful group Chairlift, and she's recorded solo as well under the name Ramona Lisa. She's collaborated with, amongst many others, Blood Orange, Subtract, and Holy Ghost, and co-wrote and produced Beyonce's song, No Angel. Mm-hmm. Chairless new album, Moth, oh, she's making a face. Chairless new album, Moth, is fantastic, and I got to catch the band live when the Talkhouse went down to South by Southwest earlier this year. They put on an incredible live show. Carolyn, thanks for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me. Yeah.
0: Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Alan Palomo and Carolyn Palachek in conversation for the TalkHouse Music Podcast.
2: How are you, Alan?
1: I'm doing pretty good. I, I feel like with that kind of setup, I thought we were going to start like figure skating or something. It's, it's
2: I wouldn't like, mind. I used to figure skate when I was young. <laughs> oh, no way. I wasn't very good at it.
1: I did uh, gymnastics for a little bit, but I think it was mostly because uh, my brother was like super what? into it. Like He was almost an Olympian. Uh, and uh, my parents were kind of just like, well, we might as well drop you know both off at the same place. <laughs> so I was just kind of just doing cartwheels in the background. Um, Younger but I can, brother, uh, older brother, older brother. Yeah, he's actually he's the one in the in the band uh, playing bass.
2: Wow. Okay. Yeah, I think it's easy to sort of look up to what an older brother does or an older brother's good at.
1: Yeah. Well, your sister was performing uh, with you on the Ramona Lisa shows, right? That's
2: right. My sister is actually an incredible vocalist. I think, you know, in terms of uh, the instrument we were born with, she definitely has the superior voice. Um, Wild. Yeah, it's, it's
1: funny because I, I feel that way about my brother in the sense that like he is such a committed musician, you know, to his craft. Like I can play my songs if I learn my songs, you know, yes. but he can just pick up anything and just start shredding. And you know, as, as things went on with the live show, and you know, I realized like, oh, we're gonna need a percussionist mm-hmm. to play this stuff. He's like, oh, I studied Latin percussion in Berkeley or like so every day I find out he knows how to play some like crazy instrument. It's you know?
2: amazing. Yeah, it's it's so it was so fun um, touring with her and working with her. I mean, mostly because the the project involves so much dance, and it's amazing having someone with pretty much the identical body to you, so you so much can go without saying, you know, you both raise your arm in the same way. you both step with the same sort of posture. So uh, it sort of made it a little trickier for the third girl, who was like, "Hey, I'm not related to you." <laughs> you <know?
1: laughs> I'm seeing like one of those like uh, mirror like mime exercises where you try to like copy the exact yeah. motions of the other person. Um, I mean, yeah, I mean, what was it like touring with your sister?
2: Uh, it was great.. Um, It felt like a a sort of, like, cool family vacation minus parents.
1: And she lives here in New York?
2: Yeah. How about your brother?
1: He lives in San Antonio, um, which was, you know, I mean, that's kind of been the coolest part of uh, having him in the band is that, you know, he, uh, because he lived in Texas and, you know, I only visit every so often, like, this is the most we've hung out, um, you know, since I would say since we lived together, you know, and, you know, I mean, we shared a room pretty much up until, you know, I went to college. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's like we only, you know, we only ever fight about the stupid stuff. You know, it's like about yeah. a movie or something. Um, but I feel like it's mm-hmm. always, uh, yeah, It's a, it, it, his, his enthusiasm also is really infectious.
2: When did mm-hmm. you move to New York?
1: Uh, I moved to New York January of uh, 2010. So I guess, yeah, a little, little over six years.
2: But your first record was made in Texas.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of made in a... I mean, I was in Austin, and, um, you know, it was, like, a really... uh, It was actually, you know, a very strange transitional period between Denton, which I'd been living in for the past three years, and then eventually what would be New York, just because, like... I wasn't but re- you know, I wasn't paying attention in college. Was definitely ill-equipped for academia, you know, just going into it was mm-hmm. like not in the frame of mind to be going to classes and stuff. So I let my grades slide, and then you know, and then ultimately was getting more and more obsessed with this project that I had called Vega. But you know, pr- the production angle of it was like just so exhausting to like, you know, I mean, dance music's any way you cut it is, you know, not easy to make in terms of. Uh, you know, if you don't have the adequate resources and and know how it's going to work in a club context and all that, so Neon Indian was just kind of this. I want to, I, I keep wanting to curse casually, and I understand that uh, we can't exactly do that. Um, but uh, I wish we just
2: had a button you could hit every time you felt the need for an expletive, <laughs>
1: <laughs> just like a yeah, like a like a slide whistle sound or something. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah, ultimately that just kind of was birthed out of you know a need to just have a project where I just you know the, the the proposition was you write a song every day and then in less than a month i had a record and that's never happened since wow
2: well i think when you're just starting out sort of just the act of finishing something is good enough in itself whereas the longer you go you, the, the pickier you become and the, the loftier the, the goals are how did you meet uh, patrick and start working with him i met patrick and really patrick's my bandmate in chairlift for anyone who's unfamiliar with chairlift um i met Patrick on my first day of freshman orientation in college. Ah, at, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, he was actually my first friend—not um, ever, but uh, <laughs> you know—but <laughs> uh, but not 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 far off actually. Um, no, I met Patrick uh, because his his band at the time was opening for Cat Power, and it was my wow. first day of freshman orientation. I didn't know anyone, and so I looked up, you know, I looked in the college newspaper and saw what's going on tonight, and I went to a Cat Power's show in an amphitheater by myself. And his band opened, and it was mostly uh, like a jazz outfit. And What were they called? I'm not going to tell you because the name was so bad. Patrick? I was
1: waiting for it. I thought, yeah, no, I was really hoping nope. it was going to be like... Uh, nope. Yeah, that's like a tra- that's a trade Patty secret. and his Wailers or like some kind of like ska band no, type it was name. No, worse than
2: that. <laughs> worse. Um, but it did not have the word Patty in it, I'll tell you that. But um, I uh, asked them after their set if they were at all looking for a keyboardist or a backing vocalist because I loved what they were doing and I just moved there and I was 18 and didn't know anyone and would love to play with them and they uh, they took my number and the next day I got a call from Patrick and he said, hey, this is Patrick, uh, I met you last night and uh, uh, we're not looking it's a great for someone in the <laughs> band. My friend just wanted your number, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I was very disappointed but... Um, I hung out with Patrick later that day and listened to Weather Report, and two hours later, after jamming with him in his living room, I was in the band. Amazing! So we've been been playing together since that band fell apart, and then I started Chairlift with someone else, and then Patrick joined in a sort of inverse way of essentially asking if he could join, and me saying, no, we didn't need a drummer, and then, of course, he comes to one rehearsal and we have a drummer. So now Chairlift is just the two of us and has been since uh, 2010.
1: Yeah, since uh, a second record, right? Yeah,
2: exactly. Since the beginning of the second record,
1: um, and that uh, that happened in New
2: York. Chairlift uh, actually formed in Colorado. Um, wow. Yeah, we were a Colorado-based band for about like six months, and then I got accepted to art school at NYU, and
1: and we relocated. And how do you feel? Uh, you know, uh, have, have you been in Greenpoint the whole time, or
2: no? I've moved around. When I first moved here, I was in Williamsburg, uh, in. I guess 2006, I moved to Williamsburg for two years while I was in school and then um, moved, actually moved in with the artist that I was working for. I was assisting an artist for three years doing like fabrication and stretching 20 foot long canvases. It was actually really hard work. But um, she got a grant while I was working for her and got to move to Chelsea with a, in a doorman building for the rest of her life. And so there was suddenly a bedroom in her studio that I could I could sublet. So I was living with her while Lift was doing the beginning of touring, which was kind of an ideal situation because I had both a job and an apartment that I I could sort of turn on and off at will whenever I wasn't touring. And she was very understanding. I think for a musician Mm. in New York, that's a near impossible situation to come across. For sure. Um, So I'm very, very grateful for that. But... uh, but eventually I moved to Chelsea and I lived in Chelsea in a kind of shitty apartment. Th- oh, sorry. Oh, these, these guys will edit it. <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. I, I lived in a not extremely beautiful apartment in Chelsea for a few years but what I really liked about living in Manhattan was how anonymous you feel. Which you know, Brooklyn, especially North Brooklyn, is there has so many musicians living there that I feel like it's sort For of sure. like high school. Like you're walking into the cafeteria uh, when you leave the you leave the apartment. The
1: cafeteria being Five Leaves. The uh, <laughs>
2: cafeteria being Manhattan <laughs> Avenue. <laughs> totally, totally. Or even the L train. And you know, sometimes it's great because things, all sorts of things, end up happening that you wouldn't expect. Like you're walking down the street and suddenly you find yourself in a session. Yeah. But um, and that's sort of like the dream. That's why people move to New York. But then you know,
1: it's kind of losing that quality a little bit. Um, or at yeah. the very least, I know that a lot of uh, at least our musicians. And friends have relocated to Los Angeles. Um, yeah, that's
2: true. I don't know. I try not to be too pessimistic about it. There's so many new musicians coming up and the scene is evolving and and changing.
1: And, and I guess it's like, you know, I mean, I, I kind of go back and forth always between... Because, I, I mean, I arrived in 2010 and outside of you know like crashing on some couches for the first like six months i've just been on the same block in greenpoint um and it's definitely evolved you know like williamsburg kind of moves up a block uh, every yeah. six months <laughs> um and the foot traffic gets a little bit more intense and obviously you know i can't i have friends that or yeah, all, all our friends are always kind of complaining about gentrification, but to some extent, like, you know, I'm a musician. I live in Brooklyn. I sell a lifestyle, you know, I'm like totally part of the problem when it comes to like being a transplant and having arrived. And ultimately what we don't realize is that we, you know, we've been doing like research and development for these condominium companies. Um, but at the, you know, uh, at the end of the day, New York will never stop being, like, the epicenter of the Western world, you know, it's always going to be this, like, soup of culture, you know, and and I, and I in that sense, I feel like, you know, New York's not going anywhere, you know, I feel like the, the nature of it is that it's undergoing these different permutations, and it might, you know, pander to, to different sensibilities, you know, but it's always going to pander to somebody, you Yeah. Know?
2: I think the thing that inspires me, or that, that sort of keeps me from getting bummed out about, uh, about sort of the... You know, gentrification is, as you, as you were saying, is like there's always an option to sort of like strip back aesthetic, and I think aesthetic is the thing that, like you were saying, the condominium companies and the brands in general are can so easily co-opt. But I think, um, I think things like composition and soul. And drawing from actual real life experience in music is something that cannot be co-opted. And I think as a songwriter, it's you know I think more so than being a producer. Like I think when you're a producer, your sound can be nabbed and copied so quickly. And I, I'm, I'm, and I, even as a vocalist, but um, but I think as a writer, that's the thing I feel the most confident in. Being a New Yorker, that that one can own. Yeah,
1: and and th- I mean that's so true. You know, and, and not that. Not that companies are, you know, or, or just this general idea of, like, you know, branding behind uh, the generation of what should be such an elemental and personal mm-hmm. thing, you know. Not that they don't try to emulate, you know. But it's always funny when I hear a, uh, you know, a, I don't know, like a a chili's commercial or something that like yeah. that song basically sounds like lcd sound system or something but you as a musician you know that they can't co-opt you know what is the true sentiment behind the song even though someone would want to contort it to mean yeah. something else or or to soundtrack like a you know what is ultimately an artificial experience or a commodity of some kind yeah um but i mean that's also just i, I feel like you know music is kind of flirting a little bit more with that just because of the nature of you know i mean it's, it's like the record industry you know unless you're Prince, and then he got control of your catalog um, uh, which apparently I had read today that uh, he didn't have a will so there's actually going to be quite a bit of uh, or it could potentially get you know very complicated wow. in the litigative aspects of it um,
2: so who owns his catalog now
1: I don't know that's like oh, wow. Yeah, if this was like our, you know, uh, this morning edition NPR show, this would be like the the topic. <laughs> uh, but uh, I feel like, uh, I mean, you know, ultimately, he's always had that uh, kind of uh, and very, to me, very smart, protective attitude about you know keeping his music and and being the proprietor of it, you know. And and ultimately, like I think that was part of you know his ex- his eccentricities. But I think we all wish that we could be in a position where we have the liberty to do that, you know. Um,
2: yeah it's true I think it gets harder and harder for every younger generation to be able to control your work in that way like for example halfway through our last our last tour we started putting up no filming no photography signs up in our shows just because it was getting so distracting like people using flash photography within the crowd I think just totally takes away from not just other people's experience but it actually distracts me on stage and uh, you know sometimes I think like oh I should be more professional I should learn how to not think about it not notice it but we're we're not actors we're musicians and i think at a certain point you have to decide where you want to focus and um and that's not where i want to focus so we started putting up signs and it it changed things a little bit but not a lot And and i think at this point there's this idea built into pop culture and i think especially with younger audiences that um that you go to the shows to to, to, to take, document it, to take documentation, and that you're helping the artist by doing that. And I think this is not a new conversation, but um, I don't believe that it always helps.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I wouldn't say that it, it, you know, helps at all. But um, but it's funny because I feel like you know, in 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 1990, if you had a bad show, you know, maybe only uh, you know Madison, Wisconsin would be aware of it. You know, uh, but if yeah. But now it's ultimately like, that could be a document that lives on. And and ultimately, I mean, I guess there was something useful about that feedback, but I always think of, uh, there's a really amazing uh, video on YouTube of like Van Halen performing Jump, and the guy didn't realize that his keyboard was like transposed like half a step up or something. So he just starts playing the chords and then the rest of the band (laughs) comes in. (laughs) It's just like, this like really, you know, just messed up, atonal, yeah. but, uh, but, yeah, so obviously, you know, for those kind of shows,, uh, you definitely wouldn't want someone like holding an iPad in front of their face, like document it documenting it, which is to me, the weirdest display of like <laughs> the document is when someone is holding. Yeah. A plate over their face. It's like Max Headroom style, you know. And they
2: sing to it. That's the weirdest thing <laughs> is when someone's pointing a camera at you and they're singing to the camera. Totally, totally. It's sort of like who's watching who. Sometimes I think the people, the people in the audience are putting on a way crazier show than what's actually happening. It makes on me stage. think of that movie
1: her, you know, maybe the maybe maybe whoever's crooning to the camera is in a relationship with the you know, with their smartphone. Yeah.
2: Hey, let's talk about relationships of technology and vocals for a second. Oh cool, yeah, um, totally. Because you are primarily an electronic musician, but voice is in all of your, almost all of your music. Yeah, um, is that is that something that started incidentally for you? Like, is it was it like, oh, well, I want this to be a song, and so my vocal voice is the one in the studio, so let's use it? Or did you have a relationship with singing? Um, has has being a producer helped you f- find one? Tell me about that a bit. Well. Um
1: my dad definitely uh taught me to sing a little bit um you know uh just by the virtue of like forcing me to learn frank sinatra songs for christmas and stuff like that yeah i mean and back then like before i was really listening to music actively you know in the sense that like i wanted to make music and and eventually found the bands and artists that you know that i still listen to now um I mean, I was pretty much just just listening to like Frank Sinatra, or Nat King Cole, or all this like old music, you know, uh, and and I just had not been exposed to. Yeah, obviously everyone has that like you know gateway band like a, like a Radiohead or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, but up until then... and you know, and I'll defend you know old Blue Eyes even now. I'll say like yeah, like those records are amazing. Like, but uh, but I remember then that those are the songs I was learning to sing, and I didn't really stick with it. Yeah, I, to some extent, I can't help but think like how my voice would have evolved or changed as a singer or even just, to, you know, my cadence as a person speaking if that had been my focus, you know, is like that vocal range and those, you know, just singing old standards. And it's funny because that's kind of my go-to karaoke stuff now because it's the only use it really has in my life. Um, but, uh, but I had to, I mean with my first band Ghost Hustler it was kind of a thing where like well I wanted to make music and you know I was listening to predominantly a lot of electronic music with vocals you know I definitely had a complete New Order obsession then and still do you know but ultimately that stuff was guided you know by verses and choruses and, and, and by the virtue of that I've gotten really bad at learning how to like lately I've just been working on you know whether it be more ambient stuff uh for film or just wanting to make dance music you know just for fun and realizing that like i don't have an ear for sequencing unless there's vocals on it because it's helping you guide the song Wow. Um, because one thing yeah i feel like one thing kind of informs the other um but you know just like getting better as a vocalist just came with like time you know and i remember a long time ago i uh i asked you if you knew of any uh uh, any vocal trainers um, Which I wound up just You know Being so in the mess Of the record That I just kind of Wung it um, But it's funny Because like There's things I, I now know You know It's when you start learning What keys are ideal for you Or you know What styles Kind of complement Your vocals You know your, your I guess your voice Or whatever the composition is Because there's things I can't do Like you know There's certain Like I'll catch myself If I'm trying to sing Like very low I just kind of sound like uh, um, Like uh, the scene in Home Alone where you know Culkin's <laughs> talking to the talk boy and just pitches it down. He's like credit card, no problem, you know, or something like where you feel like it's an affectation. It's like not like you, you know.
2: Yeah, and that's funny. But
1: you're you're like a trained vocalist.
2: Uh, kind of, yeah. When I was uh when I was young, when I was, uh, I guess starting in third grade, I started singing in choir, and I sang in choir all the way up through high school. So I guess that would be until seventeen. Um, that's where I got them I spent the majority of hours singing but I, not just in in school choirs I was in a bunch of school choirs but I sang in two church choirs and wow. had an acapella group and I was in two new metal bands in high school so, no way yeah <laughs> um, so that that was that was the bulk of my my, my training if you will but uh, when I was uh, 15 and 16 I took opera lessons once a week in a sort of casual way the way a teenager tries a lot of different things and um, didn't pursue it but actually went back to that same teacher uh, two years ago now and said, "Um, I'm working on a chairlift record and I'm doing some stuff that's using my voice in a really different way and I'm afraid that if I take it on the road, I'm going to damage my voice permanently. So I asked asked her if she would consider, you know, jumping back in with me so I could learn how to use my voice in, in a safe way. So we actually started by... And mostly work on classical repertoires, like like a lot of Rachmaninoff and Handel, and place you know, and some Mozart, some Bach. But but learning how to get as much volume out of my body safely, uh, and opera is the most amazing medium for that because you really have to use your entire torso as a as a, a, a acoustic resonating chamber. It's not coming from your throat. It's coming. Your your whole body is the instrument. Um, which is really interesting and actually going back and listening to the the recordings that are on the chairlift record i could do them a lot better now after having spent you know uh, yeah that's so, the irony which is good sure. because the 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 eventual goal was to learn how to tour safely and 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 thankfully i got that out of it you
1: gotta tour safe kids
2: tour safe yeah
1: it's funny i mean i, I always feel like uh i'm most ready to work on a record right when i've just finished a record yep. because you know you you're uh, a well-oiled music machine at that point, you know. Like yeah. I feel like so much of, to me at least, making a record. Uh, and this one was was the most collaborative, you know, in terms of bringing people in and, and almost kind of treating it like a movie. Production Tell me about or that. Who
2: did you bring in this this time around?
1: Uh, well, my brother wound up being, you know, the the thread that just unraveled the whole thing um, because I, you know, I, I had lost uh, the record that I was working on. Um, and, uh, and you know literally I just had my laptop swiped um, but uh, which is actually I mean it's totally my own fault because it was like we had played Terminal 5 and like it was, it was just a belligerent debaucherous night where I was just like kind of you know obfuscating just blindly into the abyss and then I got back to my apartment and I realized I didn't have my keys um, my roommates weren't answering the phone I tried to go to my old apartment wake up my old roommates and then while I was kind of figuring out what to do kind of in this drunken stupor I was just like sitting on my stoop um, and uh, and I just nodded off and like when I woke up my laptop was totally gone so you know it was lesson learned um, you know but I would say uh, after that you know I kind of uh, stepped away from music for a little bit and was kind of thinking about alright well you know DJing is something that you haven't done in a long time and when I was in a habit of doing that every week in college uh, with my drummer Jason you know we were voraciously hunting for records which yeah. there, you know in turn provides you with this new subset of influences mm-hmm. you know and I feel like that was something that I hadn't done since before the first record and the last two had just kind of been made with that with those same ideas in mind so I just thought I like alright let's go back to the blueprint and listen to some new stuff and get back into that habit of just like collecting music and little by little I started kind Ooh. of getting these ideas you know and, uh, and ultimately you know you know this record in particular. All the records have been this way, but this one in particular was just kind of this chimera of things I love. You know, and old, and whatever it is that is intrinsically me about the album is not for me to decide because when yeah. I'm working on it, it's just kind of, you know, the 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 line between appropriating something and then and it coming from a very personal place just gets blurred really fast. But uh, my brother. I had him come in and play bass and I knew he's always been funky you know he's always kind of <laughs> he's always had that sensibility um, but what I didn't realize is that you know he had been developing these like insane shops in all these different genres because you know in San Antonio working as like a session player you can't totally pick all your projects so you yep. know you have to be flexible and he was playing in Tejano bands and was playing in uh, you know, like bluegrass and metal and gospel and all this stuff, but the gospel repertoire wound up being super useful because that was all like Earth, Wind and Fire and you know, just like all this like classic disco and soul. And he picked up guitar just to get better at it. Like that's the kind of guy he is. Mm-hmm. So he just started learning these like insane like octave guitar riffs. And that's when I realized like, whoa, like we you know th- we have now found this perfect point where we can start collaborating. Which you know, our parents were always just like, "When are you going to collaborate with your brother?" You know. Um, but I'm glad that it happened organically because you know he's he, he played on you know a good like six songs on the record. But if the first record was just me and the second record was like three people between like me and the mastering engineer, this record was like 17 people, um, start to finish. And it wasn't intentionally you know gluttonous, but it was just like I just worked on it so slowly for so long that sometimes the studio would be open with the session player in mind, but then that place has its own engineers. And then, you know, once I was, uh, kind of at the finishing line, mixing with, uh, with Alex, Alex Epton, uh, you know, he knew a couple of people that, you know, we could bring in for, uh, you know, for, um, backup vocals or, you know, my friend Nick from Holy Ghost played, uh, drums. Nick on is Slumlord. such a
2: killer drummer.
1: Oh, he's amazing. He's great. Um, and uh, yeah just kind of evolved from there I know Morgan um, from Midnight Magic uh, played a lot of uh, keys uh, my friend uh, Mark whom I met through Ben Allen in Atlanta uh, did percussion on a lot of songs so it was just kind of just you know uh, we would always it would always come back to you know like oh we need cowbell I know a guy it would always come back to
2: I know a guy You know. hey that's why people move to New York right totally totally because the guy probably lives like around the block Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, this this most recent trailer record was definitely the most collaborative that we've ever done. But I think that was sort of because of two different factors. One was that we we self produced it and had a had our own studio where, um, where we were doing things. And I think you know in the past when we've been working with you know pro producers who are you know contractually making a record there's this sense that you're on the clock that you know you've got the studio time you're paying for the studio time you're paying for this guy to be there and so you don't want to risk wasting time by having people yep. come in and and just either either sit in or have dinner with you or just listen or or just you know drop in um, but this was the opposite. You know, f- we had so many friends that would actually just show up unannounced to just to come hang and listen, or like, you know, they picked up a sandwich and wanted to come eat it at our studio. So we had people moving in and out, and that did that did a couple things. Um, the first was that we had you know amazing musicians that, without really giving it much thought, we said, hey, get on this track, get on this track, get on this track. But also we had a built-in audience, and in the past our our. You know, our, our vibe in the studio had been quite insular had been really private and had felt like a sort of lab and this time around it actually felt like something more like a party or like a home and I think having that constant sort of feedback um, made us sort of more responsive and and you know, left left more things up to sort of intuition and chemistry, and saying, oh, this is working, this is working, and and also, you know, we had this sort of impulse to entertain, like, you know, we want to make people say whoa, and um, and it was it was nice to have more more years in the room. But I think as I as I get older as a musician, that's something that I'm more and more comfortable with. Like, I think when you're young, especially as a vocalist, you have this sense of not wanting anyone to hear what you're doing as you're doing it. Yeah. Um, but then as you get older and more confident, which is to say, you actually care less about what people think, not yeah. necessarily that. You're a better, better musician, but that you actually just care less because you've done more, and you, you know it doesn't matter if people think you're not sure. good.
1: You kind <clears> of <throat> lose that chip on your shoulder a little bit. Exactly.
2: Then uh, it starts getting more interesting to have people present as you're recording or as you're writing, um, and that's something that that I'm really interested in at this point is sort of that performative aspect of recording.
1: Well, I also wanted to ask about. Um some of the influences behind the record mm. because I hear you know obviously and I know we're both fans of Bill Nelson I
2: was going to say you used the word chimera earlier
1: yeah yeah for sure for sure um, but also I mean I definitely and maybe I'm just projecting because you know I've, I've been very into a lot of Balearic stuff in the past couple of years yeah. but I was hearing little notes of like things that you know would be getting played at Club Amnesia or something where you've got, like, Linda DeFranco or some Sade records, you know, or stuff that, you know, ultimately, like, certain type of uh, chorus guitar tones or certain type of percussion uh, components. Um, yeah, like, what were you listening to?
2: Um, you know, I'm kind of a... My music listening... I'm not one of those sort of encyclopedic academic people who sort of dabbled in everything. My, my knowledge of music is actually limited to a couple pockets. And... Um, and so I, I I'm sort of embarrassed. That I don't even really know anything in the in the Balearic camp. Um, <laughs> I did I did recognize the name Shaw Day in there. Totally, but nothing totally. else that you mentioned? That's <laughs> no, um, I but, yeah, I
1: go on tangents. Don't mind me.
2: No, it's fine. I think um, well, what I was listening to is it was pretty different than what Patrick was listening to, and I think that's one of the nice things about chairlift is that Patrick and I are always have our heads in different places aesthetically, so the result ends up being something sort of unfamiliar. Um, but when we're when we were starting out this record, um, I was actually listening to... Um, let's see, this would have been like 2015. Like, I was listening to a lot of pop. Um, like a lot of mainstream pop like uh, and, and R&B. Like I really, really like that that rapper Dej Loaf. Mm. Um, I love her voice. I love her flow. So I was listening to a lot of Dej uh, at the beginning. Um, I was listening to... really into this sort of one pocket of Japanese pop that was made in the late 80s that was called City Pop at the time Um, and weirdly it was was being made in Tokyo at the time that I lived there but of course I didn't know about it because I was a very young child but it's sort of interesting how these things sort of come back around Um, but City Pop is essentially built on, on fusion jazz combined with or Jazz Fusion combined with um, sort of like M.O.R. adult pop. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, song, you know, songwriting kind of style. Kind of like Blue Nile sort of vibes. Yeah, but even sort of more sheenier and commercial than Blue Nile, but combined with serious jazz musicianship. Um, so Tatsuya Yamashita is sort of the Phil Collins of Japan, and he's still huge. He still plays stadiums, but um, but Americans aren't really familiar with his work. But he had a, had a phase in the late '80s where he was just playing with the most incredible musicians, and all these recordings were sort of were, were very very funky. But unlike sort of more Western funk, there is a sort of surgical precision to it, and an extremely beautifully balanced mixes. And I and by listening to that stuff, I thought, you know, I really, I'm really interested in, in this idea of hi-fi because in the past, you know, when Cherrylift was, was making these recordings, we were actually trying to make things sound abstract and, and dirty and layered, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to, as opposed to really, to really clean and, and three-dimensional and and spatial. We were trying to do the opposite and break, break sounds down and mush them together. Um, and Patrick, you know, has been, you know, sort of producing around town since you know since he moved here, and he was sort of ready to to sort of show off and and expand his chops as an engineer, and also as a producer. So we we sort of got into this record with that idea of we wanted to make a really hi-fi record, but we wanted the soul of it to feel contemporary, like to get at what it feels like to be in New York in 2015, in 2016, um, to get at that that sort of energy of of walking down the street, you know. That, that only New York can give you. Um, and well, I, I love that that uh, aspect
1: of the record. I love that every sound is, you know, I mean, it it showcases uh, not, not just, like, the bravado of, you know, the playing, but also, like, I love that I can hear every individual texture. You know, it gives you a lot to, because um, I tend to just sort of, you know, it's like you chuck a burrito at the window, and it just kind of goes like, <laughs> you know. Um, but I, uh, yeah, it, it really, it, it lets you, you know, kind of, ruminate on every sound it's really cool
2: sometimes when i listen back to it it sounds like too much like oh gosh how can people even how can people even enjoy this there's too much going on but i think with every record we try to scale back more and more and whether that's a successful effort i'm not sure but um but we we're trying we're trying we're we're both maximalists and we're both obsessed with textures and sounds so patrick and i really have to work actually to, to limit how much we're putting in
1: it's funny because uh, do you ever get to the point where and this happens to me all the time where if I've been sitting on a song for too long and I come back to it I don't realize that that initial idea was probably enough to carry it so I just start throwing more stuff on top and more mm. stuff on top and then by the end you know you kind of almost have to uh, well I, by the end that's typically when you're hoping for someone else's second opinion to be like you know not not so much producing but reducing you know where they just start yep. taking things out yep. um, and I've tried to get better at that but you know I mean the irony is that this you know this probably the most bells, bells and whistles that i put on a record has been this last one you know
2: yeah i think when you're working alone it's hard to it's hard to kill your children so to speak when you've put so much love into every layer of a of a composition there were three songs that we felt uh, on this record that we felt were overstuffed but we couldn't bear to part with any part of them so we actually mm. brought in this young producer in LA named Robin Hannibal to we gave him you know essentially completed it's a great name by the way oh, he's the best uh, he's danish um and he is a master of you know both hi-fi and funk, but also like very minimal production. So, uh, so we thought he'd be a really good match. So we did a did a sort of brief set of sessions with him in L.A. where we brought him songs that you know both we and the label thought could be ready to master but said you know what can you gut from these how can how can you tighten these up and he did an amazing job just saying wow. let's try this let's try this let's try this and very often he'd do something and we'd go no and then we'd sleep on it and wake up the morning next morning and go yes <laughs> yes um and we, cut, we cut we yeah. cut minutes off songs to ching was a minute and a half longer than it was after we got out of the session with him and he's great just slashing and burning but with a very tasteful and musical approach so um and he, he he added added a couple um, a couple elements here and there too, which um, which was amazing. Definitely stuff we would not have thought to add ourselves. So it was it was very fruitful. I would I would consider working with him again or any any producer again in that exact way, sort of as a I don't know, like as a a, a butcher.
1: Yeah, I, I've always been obsessed with the idea of um, freeing something up to be greater than the sum of your contributions yep. to it. You know, and, and I feel like that's did that come with time where you you get to this place where you're you're less uh, and and you mentioned it earlier you know as far as like working on music privately versus now you know allowing it to be a little bit more open forum and bringing people in is did that grow over time and you know this this attitude of like i just want to make the best record i can it's not about you know me making the best record it's just about the thing existing on its own as this like fantastic thing you know
2: yeah i mean honestly my my opinion about records as, as a form in general has been wildly oscillating for the last year. Like if you asked me a year ago if I wanted to make a, a record, I would have said no, I just want to make singles. I want to make a couple short EPs. Um, that, that was my initial feeling after finishing Moth. But now, having you know spent some time touring, I realize how much context an album can give a song. And I think, um, I think some artists are masters of context, like Lana, Lana Del Rey, for example. You know she can do something that's so simple but because of the world of context that she's built up around her, her record it can seem so uh so psychopathic yeah. you know some, a gesture that would be simple or sweet for anyone else to do and i think a record is really the best way to do that because you have enough material that the songs can inform each other and the art can inform everything and you've had enough time to really steepen it that the symbols start coming out and you can start applying them in sophisticated ways whereas i think You know, a single song, like I also think about Formation by Beyoncé, is is so loaded that song has enough context to, you know, wrap up the rest of it, a whole album with a bow. Again, it depends on the song, but I think the more subtle you want to make a song, the more it benefits from being on an album.
1: Yeah, that's wild. And well, speaking of albums too, when you were mentioning, um, uh, uh, was it City Pop? Yeah, uh, a long time ago, I came across this record that I didn't get, but it was just called City Music Volume One, and it looks like almost like an old like '80s like Sony Discman um, mm-hmm. as the cover, and it was a compilation of uh, of like Japanese, you know, presumably Tokyo-based like pop acts of that time. But now, I'm now wondering like, is that what that record sounds like? Or oh. that, I mean, I'm assuming it must be that if it was just called yeah, I mean like.
2: Yeah, I mean, Tatsuya Yamashita was by no means the only artist, or even sort of central,
1: or um, any of the uh, the YMO characters uh, kind of affiliated with that, or
2: um, kind of like I think Hosuno was was working with some uh, artists. There's one in particular I love named Asami Kato, mm-hmm. who was incorporating some sort of dub, more dub elements into well. the into the backbone of her work, and and you can kind of get a get a sort of funkier harsher edge like a sort of hosuna feeling i'm not sure if he actually produced that record or not um but my personal favorite and i think the artist that inspired me the most um from that era is a is a lady who's actually still performing um her name is Mishio ogawa mm-hmm. and she uh was in c- a couple groups before going solo one was called wahaha which was making much more experimental progressive punk music than would even be classifiable under city pop um harsher jazz noise and then, and she was a vocalist for that and then a group called Chakra that was bringing in more sort of traditional Japanese um, and also funk elements into that mix and again I think that wasn't sleek enough to call it city pop but then she made a beautiful record um, called called oh, I forget if it's three to four or four to three it's four to three um, called four to three and like the aspect ratio I guess uh, I guess so right that would be a vertical image yeah um, or that'd be with, I've had too much coffee, I can't even think straight. But, um, but the way she sings and, and also composes for, um, for drums and for guitar is in these sort of like waves, these sort of irregular gestalts, like things will bloom and blossom in these really organic ways. Um, and the recordings stay clean, they stay even, and it's extremely emotional so much good musicianship so that record sort of became like a blueprint for me of what I wanted to do not necessarily with chairlift but just in general with everything yeah. um, for for a while and I still listen to it all the time but but man I haven't been as obsessed with a record probably since I was like you know 16 as, I, as I was with that record for it's the great last when two years rare birds come in it, yeah perfect albums um, and then towards the end of Making Moth, I started listening to a, com- uh, a contemporary Indian composer named A.R. Rahman, who's, you know, he's like the, bigger than Kanye over there. He's he's a film composer, and he's been the number one film composer there since, um, I guess, since the since the late 80s. Oh, wow. Is that that, um, I've seen a video of
1: what <clears throat> was probably like the largest concert, uh, just Because I think there's like um, You know one time I was like Thumbing through this like Wikipedia article of like Largest concerts on record And obviously there's like Jean-Michel Jarre But there was an uh, There was an Indian composer That I believe that was him But it was just like You know Just so many people at this show, definitely in the hundreds of thousands.
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't know, but it, it feasibly could be him. How long has he
1: been uh, writing?
2: I mean, I want to say since the 80s, but but it could be longer than that. That's just the, at the point where I started, that's the point in his career where I started picking up on his work. But um, I became particularly interested in a, in a pocket of his work in the early 90s because that's when they started getting... Um, all the same synths and samplers and drum machines that we were using for techno music, yeah. but but he was using it for for soundtracks, and and this was before they started auto-tuning and pitch correcting the vocals, before they started incorporating, you know, really obvious Western influences into the sort of chromatic aspect of the songwriting, and so you really ended up, you know, you had these things that were rooted in Indian classical music and Indian religious music, but with this really, really rich and fat palette that had had tabla and had four on the floor like techno techno kick amazing Um, and it's amazing the stuff that came out you know it's it's almost easy to hear Bjork in some of this stuff and she was for sure listening to that Um, but but uh, there's one vocalist in particular KS Chitra who just has the most incredible voice she's a big 50 year old lady but she was doing the voices for all these like hot young ingenue actresses um, because they do you know the voiceovers and all the Bollywood films there totally i i the whole i was just in love with the whole thing so i think um it was almost like finding a, a piece of the puzzle that was missing very late in the process but, do you have a
1: favorite uh, bollywood movie Ah,
2: uh, yes and i don't know how to pronounce it let me see if i can hack my way through how it's called it's i uh, turn up our oh yeah we should mention our soundtrack
1: oh yeah, yeah. um Got a bit soundtrack. of a um, an homage to, uh, let's say, Laurie Spiegel. Got some uh, ambient, self-generated electronic music happening in the background. Brought a couple of uh, instruments. Should I just be like making some sounds while? You're yeah. looking that up.
2: Technically, you haven't. All right, I got it. I'm just going to do my best to pronounce it. Kandukonden, konden kando
1: Oh, gotcha. Um, it's funny my favorite I remember when I was living in Denton uh, my friends showed me this film called Lagan that is like just it's like almost like a four hour Bollywood epic about this cricket match and everything about it is like one of the most spectacular movies I've ever seen it's really great um, have you ever been to India? I haven't I haven't I would love to go that's one of those places where you know, we got to go to um, Asia on tour uh, this last year and it's, we're just kind of slowly just checking off you know just mm-hmm. like alright <laughs> parts of the world that I really want to go to but yeah India is definitely next on the list
2: did you get to go to Seoul? no we actually we had
1: a show there and the um, uh, for whatever reason like the festival funds fell through um, so we didn't wind up you know like getting to play but we did you know we went to a whole plethora of places we went to um, Jakarta Shanghai Hong Kong Beijing Taipei Bangkok um, and then went down to Tokyo Osaka um, but you know, for me, it was just like also an amazing food tour because the older you get on tour, the it, it's less about partying and more
2: about food. <laughs> more
1: about food, for sure, uh-huh. definitely. Um, which I would say, bar none, uh Indonesian cuisine was mm. was to to me the the, the most uh, exotic in terms of like anything I've ever had before. Because I remember right when we got there, the first meal was like um, mm. like dried, almost like kind of not quite jerky, but like very you know like it would break uh, um, like dried beef lung. Uh, And then I remember the dinner before the show, uh, it's funny, it was like 100% humidity, it was like outdoors. Does that mean you can swim? Uh, (laughs) One would think, uh, because I was definitely practically swimming in my sweat. Uh, But, yeah, it was just, like, super hot. You know, it was, like, in in the high 90s. And just before uh, we went to go have this dinner, it's like kind of like a traditional style where they bring out all these plates. And, you know, they're just bringing you food. You're not really ordering anything in particular. And then later they count up the the plates. And, you know, that's how they sort of calculate the tab. But um, I remember I had... um, cow brains in a, in a curry, uh, which I guess, like, I, I'm definitely not a picky eater, and I'm sure that once, you know, like, once we're in our weird dystopian future where we're all eating crickets, like, I'll be stoked, because crickets are dope, mm-hmm. uh, but I feel like um, it, as delicious a- a- as it all was, it was totally the wrong thing to eat, like, an hour Ooh. before a show, because I'm just, like, you know, I've had this, like, banquet meal, and I'm just up there on stage, just, like, trying to do, you know, my little, mm-hmm. my little pirouettes, uh, and like the humidity. I, I felt like, you know, like meatloaf. Uh, like you know? the
2: cow is thinking for you now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh. Yeah,
1: for sure. We, we became one, that's for sure. Um, wow. But, um, but you know, incredible meal nonetheless.
2: Oh, that sounds so good. That's funny that you mentioned touring in Asia because last night I started thinking that I'd... Um wanted to do a, a translated version of one of our songs. I, it was something I've done on every record, to, to take in one song and translate into another language. But I wanted to try either Korean or Chinese. I don't speak either one of them, but I was thinking, you know, it would be nice if doing something like that could pave the way for us to go there. Well, you had a, a, a single in Japanese, mm-hmm.
1: right? Yeah. Yep. Which I remember seeing at a Japanese record store, and I was super pumped.
2: Yeah, we did a really cool uh, version of that song for... Um, for a Japanese label, I, I don't speak Japanese, but I grew up listening to it because my parents speak it. They spoke it at home a little bit, and I went to preschool in Japanese, um, and I you know heard it on TV and around as a as a kid. So I think it comes much more naturally in terms of like sounds and cadence than Chinese would. Chine, you know especially you know Mandarin or Cantonese it, it has such a different set of the sonics are so subtle. So I, totally. Um, so that would be fun. That'd be really fun to do.
1: Yeah, I've definitely been uh, wanting to write music in Spanish for a long time, Um, but it's funny because I feel like when I speak Spanish, and it's perfectly functional, you know, like you're totally fluent, right? Totally, totally, and that was my first language. But because I haven't had as much like practice, um, you know, in the past few years, like you know, I'll talk to my parents on the phone in Spanish. But my brother, my brother and I, we just speak in English to each other, just kind of out of force of habit, because we would be communicating at school. It would be weird for us to start just suddenly speaking in Spanish Mm, and like excluding our friends. But um but I remember uh yeah, I mean it's like I Whenever I go to Mexico and I do press, you know, like I can definitely speak in Spanish, but I there's a certain aspect of my personality that isn't represented just because so much of Spanish is like super colloquial and very like slang oriented. You know, it could be a conversation amongst doctors and they're you know just be like este pinche cabrón, which by the way, cursing in Spanish can I don't know if <laughs> we can get away yeah.
2: with that. Well, um, but don't you feel like because um, lyrics have this automatic sort of detachment from speech? it wouldn't matter like even if your spanish was more formal that would work with the format of electronic music well i mean i think to some extent i
1: also you know like you know i'm, I'm no pablo neruda you know i got to i got to got to work on my lyrics a little bit yeah. i think that's the one thing where it's like it's i haven't really found a you know a, a poeticism mm. um, when i speak spanish that i'm like still kind of trying to tap into just out of the virtue of never having tried to write music in spanish yeah. um but it's in there all the time you know there's certain songs on this last record that that I started, you know, that there was kind of this, like, toss-up in terms of, like, if they could be saying in English or Spanish, you know, with things that were definitely already flirting with what, you know, mm. to my brother and I were kind of these, like, um, you know, almost like cumbia rhythms, like sixty one uh-huh. Avenue mm-hmm. or Annie. Totally. Um, so uh, in that sense, I, you know, it's long overdue. But I also, you know, in that sense, I don't want to pander because I feel like um, if I do it, I want it to be a sincere gesture that, you know, is just kind of is birth of this, of, of this genuine desire to want to write something in a, in a language that I haven't really had a lot of experience writing in, you know, because I feel like if I, uh, you know, if I if I did it in some way that felt disingenuine, you know, and and, and to me it's like, as someone who is from Mexico, I wouldn't want, you know, to, to feel like like I, I was doing it as like a wink and a nod, you know, I would want it to be its own sort of standalone statement, hmm. um, which in a way is, you know, you you kind of wonder uh, if you're operating in an English-speaking market. If you know, if you would be alienating um, your Eng- you know English speaking fans by writing a song in Spanish that that you then you know have no aspirations of translating for them, you know
2: I guess for you know going back to what we were talking about earlier, the the influences for the chairlift record, I was very I felt very um, I guess I feel like listening to music in a language I don't understand. Sensitizes me to the music more. Mm-hmm. It makes you read into the emotion of the vocal as opposed to the uh, to the lyrics, which actually I found to be more sometimes a more liberating musical listening experience. Totally. Um, because the, sometimes the things that you imagine they're saying are much purer than what they may actually be saying. It feels almost more universally human um, and less specific and less tied to any you know particular narrative. It's it's easier to make it your own in a way, and yeah. so that made me sort of approach my own relationship with English in a very different way like a lot of the songs that we wrote were actually just started with what I call an applesauce which I would just sing Mm -hmm. syllables and actually sometimes the production would be almost completed before I'd actually switch from an applesauce vocal to a lyric a final lyric I love that term by the way and and some songs you know I I really pounded them into the ground to make the lyrics make sense and deliver a, a and I had a very specific idea but others I didn't and I left the applesauce almost intact really just changing the sounds to words like for example the last song on our record is called No Such Thing as Illusion and those lyrics are very ha- are hard to decipher if you're just listening to the track but if you read along they're quite clear um, and weirdly I, I, I think they're some of the most sincere r- lyrics on the album and I, and I think when you you know you were saying you're no Pablo Neruda but I think sometimes when you turn your sort of intentional lyric brain off really beautiful things can happen but I guess this is a sort of roundabout way of of me encouraging you to write and write in Spanish and a not worry about people judging you you know judging your relationship with your roots or accusing you of pandering but I think because really beautiful things can happen that would not happen otherwise or would potentially not happen otherwise
1: very true have you ever uh, uh, played shows in Mexico
2: we have um we we played we played down twice. We actually played there in November, and it was incredible. We went down for a, fo- for a festival called Corona Capital. Oh, yeah, Corona totally, to- yeah, yeah, oh, great pronunciation. guess. <laughs> and it was, I mean, I thought it would be, you know, cool, I thought it would be sort of an average festival experience. Fans are so emotional there, I couldn't believe it. Totally. We were We were playing them a record that hadn't come out yet. You know, we only played two songs that anyone there would know, and people were dancing so hard, freaking out, so excited to be hearing new material. It, much more, I think, appreciative than American audiences were, just Generally. Also, it was a free festival, which was amazing because you end up with whole families that were going together, and you know, multi-generational fan groups, which was amazing. And we did a meet-and-greet afterwards, and you know, I I cried multiple times with people who were also crying. I did not I did not go down there expecting that, and you know ever since then I post Instagram pictures and people say come back to Mexico come back to Mexico so really supportive sweet audience there
1: the only time that someone has licked the van window as we were driving away oh, was in wow. Mexico City so that
2: <laughs> thats a anything well I think I think that's really a really had a
1: proper window licker for sure <laughs>
2: uh, I think that's sort of a high point of our conversation
1: yeah for sure for sure definitely um, well it's been lovely chatting with you Alan likewise absolutely